This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri. And with me today is Julie Nuremberger Haig, who's an assistant professor of mathematics education at Kent State University. Julie, thanks for being back on the podcast. Thanks for doing this service to our field. We are going to be talking about Julie's new study that is coming soon in the journal Early Education and Development. And the study is called A Cautionary Tale How Children's Books Misteach Shapes. And it's a study of children's books about shapes, and it's going to be really intriguing, especially for me because I have two preschool-aged children. And so it's something that's a daily kind of occurrence for us to be talking about shapes and reading books. And before we get into your actual study with those shape books for children, what was the genesis of the study for you to want to take this on and to look at this topic? I was teaching an elementary content course for mathematics for pre-service teachers. Mm -hmm. And I'd already started to understand from my elementary teaching colleagues that some people might have difficulty understanding or believing that a square was a rectangle. Mm. And so I posed that to my students to make sure that we addressed that, even mm-hmm. though I wasn't teaching the geometry course. Okay. It was a number and operations course. Yeah, but it's an important enough thing about squares and rectangles. We want to make sure we get this straight. Exactly. So I, I wanted to see what would happen and, and help them out if I could. Of the 19 students that were in my course... None of them believed a square was a rectangle at that time. And so I really started thinking about the fact that they've had high school geometry Mm -hmm. and other experiences that still made it difficult for them to change their conceptions. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking back at, well, was it elementary textbooks or where does this start? And so I went all the way back to children's books since from birth, apparently, Mm -hmm. children are exposed to names of shapes. Mm Mm-hmm. What does the literature show, like, so you had this anecdotal evidence with these 19, which is pretty striking to have 19 out of 19 that thought, like, square was separate from rectangle. But what does the literature show about either children's or adults' understanding of shapes and shape properties and relationships? For that specific issue, Uh children and adults think that they're mutually exclusive for the Mm -hmm. most part. Mm -hmm. And then bigger picture, there are other issues with shapes as well. Um, with children especially, they often conflate 2D and 3D shapes, like calling a cube a square, oh, things right. like that. Mm-hmm. And especially with quadrilaterals and all the subtypes of quadrilaterals, uh, research on pre-service teacher knowledge and teacher knowledge as well as children show similar things mm-hmm. that, that there's difficulties in understanding the categories and really thinking about the properties. Mm-hmm. They often tend to think in terms of prototypes from visual experiences. Right. So this is like they have a vision of a triangle and it's like a very perfect triangle sitting a certain way, like with its base along the horizontal. Exactly. Um, And they think of triangles in relation to that prototype instead of thinking of like a general definition of triangle or general properties. Exactly. In fact, um, one study but reported for teachers in teaching children mathematics that was a shifter uh, in 1999 talked about a whole class of third grade students who were shown 10 different triangles, and mm-hmm. the only triangle they recognized as a triangle was the equilateral or the acute isosceles. Uh-huh. But then then they went through and compared it to definitions and then accepted, okay, these are triangles, 
but the real triangles <laughs> are the ones that were in their visual prototype. So it's kind of this like, technically those are triangles, but I still like my ones that are closer yes, to the prototype. Exactly. Yeah. You talked about how you wanted to kind of go back to the children's books to see where maybe some of these issues possibly were starting mm -hmm. um, or explore what was at least going on with those children's books. Mm -hmm. So how did you choose the children's books that you looked at? I chose them from free and at cost sources, thinking about what would be most representative for parents and teachers who might come to get these books. So I selected books from libraries as well as bookstores. Mm -hmm. And I took the two largest bookstore chains at the time and mm -hmm. went to the local locations and went to two libraries, one in a middle to upper income town mm -hmm. and one in a more urban town mm -hmm. so that I could try to get a range of what would be accessible to a variety of socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And with the bookstores, were you able to kind of go to a category of books where that's called shape books and you could get like the most popular ones? Not or? a shape book category. Oh, okay. So I searched all the board books mm -hmm. for anything that had shapes in it. Okay. And then also the juvenile mathematics shelves. Mm -hmm. So anything that was categorized as mathematics, then I looked for mm -hmm. books that had shapes in it. And they didn't need to be a shape book okay. that was entirely about shapes, although most of them were. Mm -hmm. It could have been busy bee book for example that was about numbers and colors and shapes okay and then i would just look at those shape pages and so you ended up with 66 books was yes. that right mm -hmm. there were 69 books about shapes but three of them the tana hoban books that most people who teach elementary would be familiar with are just photographs and so the coding procedures of trying to look for properties wasn't relevant okay and then now when you're going through these 66 books how did you analyze what you were seeing on those pages well, one of the ways I analyzed it was to use the Van Healy framework and looked for visual level, descriptive level, and informational relational level, depending on which term you want to use to describe that, since mm -hmm. many terms have been used. Given that it's, they were children's books, I didn't look for formal deduction or anything higher. Mm -hmm. uh, and I looked for what, what shapes were portrayed. Mm -hmm and then how they were portrayed in terms of the properties, were any properties stated, which properties were stated, and also how they were visually oriented on the page, things like that. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Julie Nurnberger Haig from Kent State University about her study, A Cautionary Tale, How Children's Books Misteach Shapes. So now that you've looked across those books, um, I'm very curious, what shapes did you see represented in the, across the different books? Well, most commonly, the shapes were squares, triangles, rectangles, and circles. As uh, expected. <laughs> as one might expect. Um, but what I didn't expect was they really fell into two distributions of those shapes, which I called high-frequency shapes, mm -hmm. that appeared in 65% or more of the books. Mm -hmm. But there were low-frequency shapes that appeared in 25% or fewer of the books. Okay. And many of those were polygons, mm -hmm. like hexagon, pentagon. Okay. And then a few books did use the term quadrilateral, and then trapezoid, rhombus, and parallelogram. So the other quadrilaterals mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily mm -hmm. squares or rectangles mm -hmm. fell into that low frequency shape. With rhombus, was it sometimes called diamond or? I th oh yes. Um, yeah. I but I only coded for a rhombus if it if the book used the term rhombus, okay. not if it was a shape I knew to be a rhombus. Okay. So you were using the label that that book gave to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so calling it a rhombus was low frequency. Correct. But probably more books or other books had diamond. Exactly. Yeah. And kite only appeared in two books 
oh, as, wow. a, as an actual mathematical shape. Huh. And so I, I didn't address that in the paper since right. there were so few examples. Sure. There were also three-dimensional shapes. These were also low-frequency shapes. Mm -hmm. They tended to show visuals as well as properties more often than the two-dimensional shape books. Okay, yeah. And speaking of properties, so what did you see in terms of how the shapes were presented on those Van Healy levels that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Like, just see it by sight and that's what it is or giving properties for it or relationships between them? It was primarily just the visual. So there was a visual, either a photograph or a drawing, mm -hmm. and a label. Mm -hmm. of a shape name. Yeah. Even when properties were described, however, it was typically just the number of sides. So even oh. if even if a, a book did try to teach children about properties of shapes, they really didn't address angles. Even for words that I like to say were perfectly suited for this, like triangle and <laughs> rectangle, where the yeah. The root words of the actual term mm -hmm. should lead us to think about angles a little bit. Mm -hmm. Most books didn't talk about angles. Hmm. One of the things that your study does is it gives a rundown of some of the inaccuracies that you can see or infer from the way that the shapes are presented. Mm -hmm. So I want to just ask you about mm -hmm. some of those inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ones that really jumped out to you or that were so common mm -hmm. that we, you know, you couldn't avoid them in your analysis? Yeah. One of the most problematic ones, in my mind, is the conflation of 2D with 3D shapes. Hmm. So they would show a 3D object like a ball or a door or a, a toy box mm -hmm. and call it a rectangle. Mm -hmm. Or they, the ball, they would call it a circle. Uh, yes, thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the biggest issue that is, is pretty pervasive throughout, throughout the sample. Mm -hmm. And there are several ways that the books did this conflation. I found sometimes it was the case like what we just described where the image would better be described by a, by a three-dimensional mathematical term yeah but there were other times where the outline of a face could have been mm -hmm. the 2d shape and then there was the case where there just really was not much resemblance for example, a coat hanger. And so what did they try to call that? That's a triangle. Oh, okay. In the, in, in these books, <laughs> coat hangers are triangles. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Many, uh, several of the books. Right. So mm -hmm. in that one, you have to, you'd have to do some real work to sort of see, like, we can try to see a triangle mm -hmm. implied by this coat right. hanger thing, but right. it's, it's or, kind or, of a stretch. Or trace the inside, but be okay that there's rounded corners yeah. instead of actual vertices with angles. Right. Yeah. And the, the one about the faces of a three-dimensional shape, you know, mm -hmm. that one, it's kind of like, it's nice for students to make the connection mm -hmm. between the 2D faces and right. the 3D shape, but the books are kind of glossing over that entirely and just saying rectangle or they're yeah. just saying triangle. Like I think in your mm -hmm. study, you talk about cones and pyramids and they just call it a triangle. Yeah. So they're equating the object with the shape as opposed to saying, if you trace the outline or if you, or can you find the rectangle on this shape. Mm -hmm. Very few books actually were nuanced in that language, which mm -hmm. would have been more accurate. Mm -hmm. um, what other kinds of inaccuracies did you see in the books? Well, back to our my original motivation about how are squares and rectangles treated. Yeah. 43% of the books that actually describe properties of rectangles mm -hmm. explicitly told children that 
two sides have to be longer than the other. So for a rectangle, it has two long sides and two, two shorter short. sides. Exactly. But not only is th- are these explicit inaccuracies, there's implicit inaccuracies as well, because what typically happens is there is a rectangle page and there mm-hmm. is a square page. Mm-hmm. And on the rectangle page, there would be no images of squares. Mm-hmm. So even if a book didn't tell children that a square is not a rectangle, mm-hmm. it implied it by not having examples of squares right. as rectangles. Yeah, square, that's over on that other page, exactly. not on the rectangle page. And yeah. that relates to the issue of diamond that you alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. where if a book talked about a diamond, which is a vernacular term as opposed to a mathematical shape, mm-hmm. uh, except Wolfram and one curricular series I found in Australia <laughs> that treat them as actual shapes, uh-huh. they would show squares on one page and then rotate that square, and it would be a diamond on another page with a different label. Mm -hmm. So the books were also teaching children that orientation matters. It changes the shape. It changes the shape. And this is at a time when children are learning how to write their letters and numbers Mm -hmm. where orientation does matter. Right. So it's even more likely that they would come to believe implicitly or explicitly that orientation matters for shapes. So we need to be explicit with children mm-hmm. that orientation doesn't matter right. with shapes. Yeah, I've had this conversation with my young boys where they'll see tiles on the floor. Mm-hmm. And so when they're oriented to it one way, they'll call them squares. And then when they're oriented this other way, they'll call them diamonds. And so I, I use that to try to start a conversation with yeah. them. But yeah, I, I can see that it comes from the shape books where they've, you know, there's the diamond page. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that would be another question too of recognizing that a square is also a rhombus a square is also a rectangle right and a lot of attention like you said a lot of attention goes to the square rectangle relationship right but we have probably the same issue with the square rhombus relationship we do and we also have another issue with rhombuses where several of the books will tell children that rhombuses cannot have right angles okay wow so then, of course, by definition, that definition, mm-hmm. a square couldn't be a rhombus. Yeah, so maybe um, I'm wrong, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> no so, so that's, it's just another example, like yeah. with the rectangle definition. Mm-hmm. that I shouldn't say definition, because I did code separately if they list properties or if they actually give a definition. Oh, right. But they're giving inaccurate properties, as though a rhombus can't have right angles. So speaking of definitions, one thing that's in sort of my definition of polygons of any kind is that they're closed. They're a closed figure mm-hmm. and then they have certain properties and everything. Right. So how did the aspect of being closed play out in, this, in the books? Uh, a few books actually did mention that it should be closed. However, with the visual images, there were several inaccuracies such as musical triangles being treated as mathematical triangles and mm-hmm. labeled that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Clearly, they're not closed, and they have rounded corners, mm-hmm. and they're actually 3D. So that <laughs> yeah. relates to the 3D issue again. Right. But they're called triangles. Exactly. Yeah, so. And so I actually use that in my teaching. Yeah. I ring the bell, and a prompt is, how is a mathematical triangle different from a musical, musical triangle? And have the students talk about that in right. my pre-service teacher classes. Yeah. We also talked about earlier about the classification where square is you know, a kind of rectangle. One of the inaccuracies you brought up in the paper has to do with trapezoid. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, so with most of the quadrilaterals, we have the issue where the most general case is the one that they label as that. So a parallelogram will not be portrayed as a rectangle. It'll Mm -hmm. only be portrayed with slanted sides, Mm -hmm. for example, to use vernacular terms. Or even the rectangle page, it's non-square rectangles that they put on that page. Exactly. But we have the reverse issue with trapezoids, Hmm. where... 
the most specific case of an isosceles trapezoid is pretty universally the only example of trapezoids that are offered. And so they're only labeled as trapezoids. Mm-hmm. And so just like the pattern blocks, that will reinforce that trapezoids are only trapezoids if they have two sides congruent, is, is the perception, right. which is inaccurate, of course. Yeah. And so you saw that in the books. I've seen that with actual undergrads where if I draw an isosceles trapezoid, they'll be like, yeah, that's a trapezoid. Mm-hmm. If I draw another one, mm-hmm. they'll be like, I'm not sure what shape that is. Yep. It's like, it's a trapezoid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so that actually reminds me of what we talked about earlier about the literature on students and adults mm-hmm. understanding of shapes. Mm-hmm. In this study, you're not making any links between you know the books causing students to have certain understanding. But what's your thought about what you saw in the books versus what you saw in the literature about people's understandings of shapes? Right. Because I was analyzing the books, of course, I can't establish causation. Mm-hmm. However, if the children are reading these books based on the conceptions that we saw mm-hmm. in the books, we should expect to see mm-hmm. the very results that prior literature has found is true for children and even adult thinking. Mm-hmm. And people like you and I who teach have seen anecdotally as well. Right. So now let's turn to parents. Uh, If parents have children that are learning about shapes right now Mm -hmm. and they're looking at books and they want to help their child avoid those misconceptions Mm -hmm. and limited understandings Mm -hmm. of shapes, what would you say to them now? You can talk to them. Some of them might be listening. (laughs) Okay. Well, if, if you really want to use books about shapes or already have some in your home, then I would suggest checking and making sure that they at least portray more than one image of a given shape and Mm -hmm. a a variety of those images Mm -hmm. in different orientations um, and that they don't make the 2D, 3D conflation error where they call a cone a triangle and things like that. And if you want to read them with your child, then help them talk about the properties Mm -hmm. and how not everything that appears in a book is always accurate. Mm -hmm. So it actually can serve broader goals Mm -hmm. of helping them be critical consumers that just because they see something on the internet or just because they see something in a book doesn't make it true. Yeah. And talk about how these shapes that are shown as triangles or circles are actually similar or different from mathematical triangles or circles. So maybe if a parent is realizing, oh, there are some of these inaccuracies in the book, use it as the start of a conversation with your child. And I think that could maybe be productive in some ways. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about something I just saw recently where they, I think the Pediatric Association or whatever, they released new recommendations for screen time with Mm. preschoolers and young kids. Okay. And they said, you should still kind of limit your screen time, but they said that screen time can be beneficial if an adult is watching the show or doing the thing on the screen if an adult is doing it with the child mm-hmm. and then talking about what they're seeing and interpreting okay. it together okay. and that that can have some real strong benefits. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's similar with these shape books where it's mm-hmm. like the book has some inaccuracies, mm-hmm. but if it's a start of a conversation, that could maybe even be more robust. And so those are open questions for research. Yeah. And that's not where I'm going to focus time in the immediate future. And uh-huh. I... I would love it if if others who are hearing this podcast and go to this article mm-hmm. w- would take some of that work on. Yeah. I would foresee that one possible productive 
a way to interact as a parent might be to have them trace with their finger where can you see rectangles on this shape mm -hmm. but the building is not a rectangle yeah it's a rectangular prism right Things or like if that. this coat hanger suggests the idea of a triangle let's trace where we see the triangle mm -hmm. but it's not the coat hanger it's mm -hmm. it's sort of suggested mm -hmm. inside the coat hanger mm -hmm. somewhere <laughs> and, and that it do, it actually has rounded corners so that makes it different from a mathematical triangle mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for talking with me about this. It's a really fascinating study, and like I said, I'm really into this topic because of having my own young kids. But I want to ask you one final question. I always try to have a little bit of fun at the end, as you know. Yeah. So if people go back and listen to episode 1509, you can hear Julie and Sarah talking about another children's book study about number, mm -hmm. and so that's also a fascinating one. And there I also asked you what you would do if you weren't in math education. Mm -hmm. But now what I want to ask you actually is you are in math education. <laughs> yes. So what has been maybe the most memorable day on the job in your math ed career? Well, actually the most memorable day on the job was when I got to co-pilot a plane at Bowling Green State University. <laughs> and I'm not sure how that relates to math ed. How did you work your way into the uh, cockpit? Because I was leading a, I was organizing a, a STEM event to promote science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, mm -hmm. and the aviation department was part of that event. Wow. And so I had to go coordinate with them, and they mm -hmm. offered to take me up, and I was in the pilot or in the co-pilot seat, and they let me take the wheel for a little bit. So wow. I went back to the office and said, "Best day of work ever." <laughs> that sounds very fun. So yeah. Well, we're very glad to have you in the field and uh, keep up the good work. So this article will be available very soon, or maybe it's available already when people are listening to this through early education and development. Julie, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Sam.